Goodbye Forever, Volume 2, Chapter 15, Part 2. Yeah, Janet sighed. Yeah, I see that. But you will be lively next week at Windlecombe. That's a promise, I grinned and bid them all farewell. Todd and Veranda opted out of the trip on the basis that they preferred to take on a packaging design project with the graphic designers. They deemed it more necessary for their professional folders than etching. No design studio is going to be interested in etchings, Todd sneered when he and Veranda announced their alternative plans, but no one commented. That left Todd standing at the closure of his announcement with an audience who appeared to be busy with their work. He mooched around for a while, seemingly in order to show he was in no way embarrassed by the silence which had met his speech. I was almost tempted to say, I think you're right, Todd, but felt that such a remark would not serve my useful purpose. I had no need to crow and certainly no desire to fuel some diatribe from Todd. And so it was that I went to Windlecombe Hall in Windlecombe, Devonshire, not by Grey Mare, but on my motorcycle with Sylvia Winstanley Greaves riding pillion. She fancied the ride on the Easy Rider machine and our combined luggage was fairly easy to accommodate, strapped on either side of the sissy bars and in the leather panniers. With the padding of the backrest removed, the large paperclip-shaped chromium bars provided ample support to a surprising amount of luggage, as long as that luggage was vaguely tubular. The journey was pleasant and I took a picnic of bacon, brie, tomato and scallion sandwiches. I thought I'd make up to some extent for your lack of meat this week. You're quite the humorist, Sylvia laughed as she devoured her sandwich. I do my best. It just seemed fitting somehow. Interesting what you said the other day about Todd and Veranda not liking the fact that you're working class. It seems to me that what they don't like is that you're always witty and always unaffected by their remarks. I think they're used to being the ones who come out on top and it infuriates them that they never get the better of you and never manage to make you angry. Well... I don't like anger, and although they do irritate me, it would really upset me if I allowed myself to become angry. How would you stop yourself being angry, though? Because sometimes they're completely insufferable and rude. Well, I remember that they're not adults. They probably have the emotional age of... I couldn't say exactly, but... I'd place it somewhere in junior school. That's an interesting perspective. I think I see what you mean. Yes, that really does seem to fit. I suppose if you always remember their children, then that really could work. But 
what happens when other people treat them as adults or when they have an effect on you in the adult world? Yes, that can happen and it has happened, but only in the past. How do you mean? Well, in the first year they did tend to influence the way I was viewed. But now you all seem to have come round to thinking that I'm not quite the self-indulgent, deranged lunatic they portrayed me as being. Jesus, Sylvia gasped. That's really true. I'm sorry about that. I suppose I really did think that to some degree. And you don't hold that against any of us? No, I chuckled. You're all nice people and... I'm looking forward to getting to know you all better without Todd and Miranda being around. Yes, that'll be fun. And didn't that work out perfectly? It would have been pretty intense to have been with those two all day long, every day, and in the evening for a week. Jesus, just think of it. That would have been hell. It would have been something or other, I laughed. But I think that Derek would have ameliorated, as it were. Yeah, Todd and Veranda are always more wary of being too obviously antagonistic to you when Derek's around. It's pretty creepy, really, the way they can turn it on and off. Before long, we were back on the road again, and soon we were in Windlecombe. Windlecombe Hall is not hard to find, and having a ribbon, we stood staring at it. It was beautiful. It was a rustic sprawl of buildings. It looked to have been the home of some 18th century gentleman farmer. The house was quite large, but not of the stately home style. It looked as if generations of family had added extensions and the roof line was somehow hard to fathom. There were two large barn structures that had been converted into two-storey studio spaces and a multitude of outbuildings surrounded a cobbled courtyard. That was where we ate most meals. I parked my motorcycle with a group of cars and covered it with the tarpaulin that I'd tied behind the rear of the saddle. We were the first to arrive so we got the pick of the rooms. We both chose attic rooms facing the courtyard. The rooms were small but comfortable. The ubiquitous stripped wood and white wall were an ideal environment for me and I sat on the bed for a while just smiling at the decor. Whilst I sat in my room I heard a car arrive and then another and another. The familiar voices rose after a while from the cobbled courtyard and soon they were joined by the ever-mirthful Derek. Time to go down and join the others. The atmosphere when I descended the stairs was ebullient and I was quite moved by the greeting I received. There's nothing quite like radiant smiles to enhance a situation. And when the smiles emanate from eight delightful young ladies, the effect can be almost overpowering. Then there was Derek, chuckling as usual, but what the subject was never became apparent. 
Laughter brought out the proprietors, John and Karen Weatherby. I see we're going to be a lively gathering this week, John Weatherby exclaimed. Too true, Karen added, and almost all girls, I see. That makes a change. I was almost a girl once, I launched in, and almost wished I hadn't. I was not used to spontaneous speech in terms of the illustration room. Karen and John looked quizzical, and so I told them about my attempt to obtain a place at Farnham Girls Grammar School. Neither Derek Crow nor the ladies in my year had heard that story, so I regaled them with it. This caused much laughter and questions which were answered in such a way as to cause yet more laughter. Quite the raconteur, John smiled. We like a good story here of an evening. Maybe you will oblige us with more as the week goes on. It would be a pleasure, good sir. These people were intriguing. They seemed to have a flair for old world English that matched my own and that of Derek. Dinner was brought out without much further ado and we seated ourselves round a massive oak table festooned with vast brass candlesticks that looked as if they had once graced a church. Dinner turned out to be three gargantuan tureens of Swiss fondue with a mountain of bread. There was also a truncated wooden bucket brimming with homegrown tomatoes and another of radishes. I'd never considered radish with cheese, but it was surprisingly pleasant. At a discreet point, Derek confided, I would like to thank you for your choice of the vegetarian menu. Gloria travelled down with me and she told me about the trouble it caused you. No need for thanks, Derek. It was my pleasure. And I'm used to Todd and Veranda being as they are. Yes, we have never had a situation like this before and it is really rather upsetting. I'm sorry at how this is affecting your time in the illustration department. It might, I ventured somewhat hesitantly, be less upsetting for me than you think. I'm very happy to be here, for example, and I don't really actually have to see that much of Todd and Veranda back in Bristol. They mainly ignore me. I'm happy that you can be so forbearing and thank you once again for your kind and considerate thought with the menu. You know, Derek, over the last year I've been thinking about vegetarianism anyway. I think I may well stop eating meat when I leave the house in Hotwells. In fact, I've more or less made up my mind to make the change. It would be unfair to my friends in the house to make that change now, but especially after this amazing fondue. So anyway, I was actually happy to cast my vote as I did. Derek nodded to indicate that he understood my reluctance to be thanked and we re-entered the general conversation. The next day I took a walk before breakfast to scout out the oak trees I'd seen in the near distance and when I got to them I wasn't disappointed. 
I suddenly had a flashback from my outings with Helen McGilvery in search of roots and branches. I remembered Janet's staggering marvellous split plate etching and decided that the roots of a particularly gnarled old oak tree were the perfect subject. I worked out how there could be five sections below and one above. The section above would be the low hanging branch and that would be a double printing. One would be an aquatint, that would be the green printing. Then there'd be a brown printing plate for the branch and twigs. The five segments below would be various shades of grey and brown. It would end up as a large piece of work and I decided I'd have to find out just how large I could go with the etching bed available. After breakfast, I explained my idea to Derek. He thought the idea was workable, although he wondered if I'd be able to undertake so much work in the time. If you don't think it's a good idea, I could leave out the aquatint plate for the leaves and handle the image on one plate. Derek thought for a while and replied, No, I would say go with your original idea. I think you have the stamina to take it on. And so I did. I made a series of drawings of the roots and low-hanging branch of the oak tree and set about preparing the plate for the initial carve-up. Rather than use hydrochloric acid to cut the plate into five sections, however, I went with Derek's advice to limit it to three and to cut the plate with a hacksaw. It was less taxing on the acid and far quicker. Using hydrochloric acid to cut the plate was an accident on Janet's part, I discovered, and so the idea to take the same approach wasn't deemed an economical use of the acid. The more the acid has to work, the weaker the acid becomes. That seemed a good idea, and using a hacksaw also reduced the time considerably. It was soon lunchtime. An entire round of cheddar appeared, and we helped ourselves to wedges of it. It was delicious, and I commented, You know, I've always thought of cheddar as being a little low in flavour, but this is so good it makes my ears ache. Derek almost choked on his food at that remark, and in fact the whole company convulsed. Karen Weatherby said that the sense of pain at the base of the ears had something to do with the secretion of acid from somewhere to somewhere else and that this also happened with certain other foods. I replied that I'd make that my test of a good cheese in the future. If it fails to make my ears ache I won't consider a cheese to be worth the candle. Suffer not the brie to be thus cast aside, laughed Karen. Ah, I was forgetting, and nor the cambazola. We use up inferior cheese on the mouse traps, commented John Weatherby. I smiled a faint smile, but concern crossed my mind. Beastly business, I know, he continued. Poor little blighters. But we have the health regulations to consider. They'd close us down if there were signs of rodents in the kitchen. 
Lunch continued in a jovial manner, but I started thinking about the mice and the way that spring came down and broke their necks. It was not a happy thought. And by the end of the afternoon, I decided that, although mice were meeting their ends by that method everywhere, it didn't have to happen whilst I was in the house. And so it was that I waited till I thought everyone was asleep and crept down into the kitchen to spring the traps. I was just in the process of exploring the likely cupboards when Veronica, the cook, appeared. She looked a little startled. Vic, can I help you? She was a young woman, probably in her late twenties, with curly hair and an impish grin. She appeared to be wearing a nightdress. Ah, yeah, I mumbled, thinking quickly what probable excuse I could find. I was getting myself a glass of water. The glasses are all in the uh, top there. Didn't you see them? No, uh, we uh, keep them in the bottom cupboards where I live and, well, yes, there they are. I got a pint beer glass and went to the refrigerator. There's no water in there. No, I'd be wanting some fruit juice or something to mix with it. I never drink water on its own. Oh, it's just that you said you came for a glass of water. Yes, well, it's late and I don't know what I'm talking about. I hate water without flavour. It's like drinking something that tastes like my mouth. And, well, I'm sure you wouldn't want to drink anything that tasted like my mouth. Veronica laughed at that and that did the trick as far as obfuscating my suspicious speech and suspicious behaviour. So, armed with watered-down orange juice, I retired to bed. I was unable to sleep, however, and decided to steal down to the kitchen again. The kitchen was dark, but for a figure holding a torch. It was Veronica, and she appeared to be involved in some mysterious activity inside one of the cupboards. I heard a sharp crack and then she detected my presence. She flashed the torch on my face and I blurted out the first thing that came to my head. I, I drank it all, very thirsty, just came back for some more. Then I thought to ask her what she was doing in the cupboard. Are you after a midnight snack? I inquired. I'm, uh, I, I couldn't sleep and I remembered this cupboard had a loose hinge, so she raised the screwdriver. I thought I might as well fix it. I poured myself another glass of orange juice and water and went to bed. Veronica didn't ask me why I helped myself to a fresh glass and I felt grateful not to have had to have made some lame excuse about having forgotten to bring the old one with me. I went to bed again. I still couldn't sleep. It was partially the mice and partially that I wasn't enjoying being thwarted. After a discreet period of time, I stole down to the kitchen and I was just about to open one of the cupboards when Veronica appeared. I remembered the words of Dujan Rinpoche. 
with each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. Look, I sighed, I may as well own up. Even I can't drink three pints of fluid in one night. I know this is bad of me, but I came down to spring the mouse traps. Veronica clapped her hand over her mouth to stifle her laughter. That's what I've been trying to do, but you kept appearing. It's been like some kind of nightmare, but isn't that just a complete hoot? Veronica proceeded to open all the cupboards with mouse traps and spring them with her screwdriver. Once having completed her task, she said, Would you like to see my rat? Of all the things in the world, I'd like nothing better. Lead on. And so we mounted the stairs to her room, which lay to the rear of the kitchen on some kind of lower version of the first floor that had been tagged onto the back of the house. Veronica had a rat in a large and commodious cage. She closed her door and released the rat which climbed up her arm and sat on her shoulder. It looked quite tame and looked at me with highly inquisitive eyes. It'll sit on your shoulder if you like. Some people find a, a rat's tail off-putting. Not me. Veronica leant over and the rat, Albert, hopped over onto my shoulder vanished under my hair and came out on my other shoulder. Nice little fellow, but larger somehow than I imagined a rat would be. Albert had a red patch on his back. It turned out that Veronica stained all the mice she caught in the humane traps her brother made in order that she could make sure they wouldn't return to the house. I have to release them at least 10 miles away in case they end up coming back again. But Albert even came back from that distance. He came back three times and then I felt bad about it. It was like he didn't want to leave me, so, so now I look after him. You won't tell anyone, will you? Of course not. I'll tell Derek but only when we get back to Bristol. He's a vegetarian and he'd love the story. I excused myself and went to bed with a sizeable smile on my face. Life was nothing if not interesting.